Well, Jesus was preaching and teaching one day, and as was so often the case, uh, Jesus told a story. And when he told the story, everybody leaned forward because Jesus was a great storyteller. And then after the story, everybody remembered exactly the story that Jesus told. But at the end of the story, nobody knew what the story was actually about. Uh, and so after Jesus' resurrection, his followers would think back to the things that Jesus taught about and preached about and the stories that he told. And after the resurrection, those stories began to make perfect sense. And one of those stories that Jesus told one day that was a really great story, but no one really knew exactly what he was talking about, it seemed a bit odd because he was talking to his disciples and there were some other people there. And, and Jesus seemed to give some fashion advice, like, you know, Jesus giving fashion advice. That was a little strange, you know, but Jesus said, let me, let me give you all some fashion advice. Don't take an old piece of clothing and combine it with a new piece of clothing because you just, you just shouldn't do that. And, you know, I imagine that, you know, here's some of these disciples, they're fishermen, you know, they're, they're man's man type of guy. And they're kind of looking at each other like, does he know who we, we don't care what we wear. We're men, you know, it's like, who cares? And, and they're like, we don't understand what in the world Jesus is talking about. And so, you know, he was telling them about the ways of, of fashion and, you know, they were just writing it down. They didn't have a flipping clue what he was talking about, but they were writing it down. And, and then Jesus made all the Baptists that were there that day very uncomfortable because then he started talking about making wine. Uh, and, and, and I just would say it, it probably wasn't real wine, probably strong grape juice is probably what he was really talking about. And if that helps you get through the day, then strong grape juice it is. And, and so Jesus was talking about making wine. And anytime Jesus dealt with wine, talked about wine, people, you know, get uncomfortable. But Jesus said, you know, you can't take old wine, pour it out, and then put new wine in the old container. You, you, just, you just can't do it. And, and everybody was, they're writing this stuff down. Jesus is talking about fashion. Jesus is talking about wine. What does this mean? And, and so it wouldn't be till later on that they knew exactly what Jesus meant. This is actually what Jesus said that day. He said, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. There you go. He came from heaven to earth to show us the way of fashion. Right there it is. You can take that to the bank. You can write that down. This, this is according to Jesus. And then he goes a little bit further and he says, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins because the fermentation will start happening and then, then it's just going to blow up. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, Jesus said, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And even though they didn't know what Jesus was actually talking about, because it was obvious that Jesus was talking about something more than a piece of clothing and some wine and wineskins, but they just didn't know what else Jesus was talking about when he was telling this story. But the point of Jesus' story was not missed by anybody in the audience that day. And here was the point. The old and the new are incompatible. Whether you're talking about an old piece of clothing and you try to take a new piece of clothing and patch over it, the old and the new are incompatible. Whether you're talking about wine and old wineskins and new wine being poured into it, the point is the same. The old and the new are incompatible. The old and the new cannot be mixed together. You cannot and you should not hold on to the old and also try to hold on to the new at the same time. And even more than that, you should not hold on to the old and refuse to take hold of the new if it means you have to let go of the old. You should be willing to let go of the old for the sake of the new. And so Jesus is talking about all this and people are listening and they know he's talking about something more than what he's actually talking about, but they're not really sure what he's talking about. And then Jesus uses some you know, irony and sarcasm uh, to lay a stinging rebuke at the feet of the religious establishment. And I just, I don't know about you, but I just love every time Jesus is a smart aleck. I just love it. And, and so, you know, Jesus uses irony and sarcasm to make a point to the religious establishment, to the religious leaders. And so he, he speaks with satire in his voice and he says, and no one, no one, hypothetically, you know, hyperbole, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. And so Jesus, he's making the opposite point. Jesus is saying everybody that's in the audience that day, he's saying, listen to me, no one should prefer the old over the new. 
No one should try to hold on to both because you can't hold on to both. And no one should hold on to the old because they don't want to lay hold of the new. You should reject the old if you have to to embrace the new. And so what Jesus was doing, he was, in, he, he was rebuking the religious leadership for their reluctance to embrace the new thing that God was doing in their midst. This new thing God had predicted all the way back in the Old Testament, God had predicted that in the future, God would at some point do a new work. He would do a new thing. He would usher in a new age, a new way. And so Jesus, in a very creative way, he was rebuking the religious establishment for refusing to embrace the new thing that God was doing. They were holding on to the old, and in doing so, they would not embrace the new, something that God had promised all the way back in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus had a point in his mind. He had something that he was thinking in his mind. Jesus knew that he had not stepped on the pages of history to improve the old. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to improve something that was old, but he came to introduce something that was new. Jesus had come to announce a new day, a new age, the time when the kingdom of God had arrived. He, he's not announcing a new version of an old thing. And so in time, it became very clear to the disciples exactly what Jesus was saying that day. The old garment was Judaism. The new garment was Jesus. And the two cannot be mixed together. The two are incompatible. The old wineskins was Judaism, the Jewish faith, and Jesus was the new wine. And the two are not compatible with each other. The new was better than the old. And, and basically the point was this. The new thing God was about to do would have no compatibility with the old thing God had done. So fast forward to the night of the Passover that we talked about last week. It's the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed and arrested. And in the upper room, he celebrates Passover with his disciples. Passover marked the most pivotal event in the nation of Israel's history. And Jesus reframed and redefined what Passover would mean after that night forever. After that night. And Jesus would say, Passover has historically been about a time to celebrate what God had done for Israel through Moses. But from this point on, it's gonna be about remembering what God has done for the world through me. And so God, that night, Jesus in the flesh, changed the meaning of Passover. And then it says, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me because no longer are you gonna think about what God did for Israel through Moses. From this point on, I'm gonna to go to the cross. I'm gonna die for you. And from this point on, you're gonna think about what God did for you and the world through me. And in the same way, it says, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And there goes Jesus again, talking about the old and talking about something new. And everybody in the room, when he said new covenant, they knew that it stood in contrast to something else. If there is a new covenant, there must be also a what? Talk to me. An old covenant. If there is a new covenant, there must be also an old covenant. And what had Jesus taught? The old and the new are incompatible. The old and the new do not go together. You cannot hold on to the old and in doing so, miss the new. If you're gonna embrace the new, you have got to let go of the old, whether you're talking about old clothes and new clothes, old wineskins and new wine, or an old covenant and a new covenant. The point was always the same. The old and the new do not mix together. And so in time, his disciples would figure out exactly what Jesus was talking about. They would figure out those clothing stories that Jesus would tell, that wineskin and new wine story that Jesus would tell, and they would understand in time exactly what Jesus was talking about that night when he talked about the new covenant. The new covenant is the new piece of clothing. The new covenant is the new wine. The old covenant, the old clothes, and the old wineskins, and they do not go together. Now, the old covenant that Jesus was referencing, everybody in the room knew what he was talking about. It was the old covenant that God had made with Moses to the nation of Israel immediately after their exodus out of Egypt. It's what we call the Mosaic 
Covenant. Now, this is really important because I, I, I'm, really, I'm, really, I'm really passionate about us understanding this as simple as it may seem. The Mosaic Covenant is an offshoot of a covenant that we have already talked about. The covenant that God made with Abraham. And a covenant is an arrangement. A covenant is a promise that God made with Abraham. It was a unilateral, one-sided promise, unconditional promise, where God promised Abraham, Abraham, you're going to become the father of a great nation. And out of that nation, the whole world is going to be blessed through you. That is an unconditional promise that God made with Abraham. This is the overarching narrative of the Old Testament. It is God's unconditional covenant with Abraham. The Mosaic covenant does not replace God's covenant with Abraham. It is an offshoot. It is a ripple effect of that covenant. The covenant God made with Abraham will supersede always throughout the Old Testament, the covenant that God made with Moses. Now, as we've been talking about, in the Old Testament, there are many parts of the story. In the scripture, there are many parts of the story, but there's only one point to the story. And so what I hope that all of us begin to understand is that in these parts of the story, it is our job, it's our responsibility to figure out how these point to the point of the story. And as we deal with the Old Testament, I want to caution all of us here in London, Williamsburg, Somerset, do not confuse the parts of the story with the point of the story. And one of the parts of the story that we're going to look at today is one of the most important parts of the story, but it is not the point of the story. The part of the story that we're going to look at today, the Mosaic Covenant, is, it contains some of the most troubling, some of the most baffling, some of the most perplexing, uh, some of the most angst-causing content in all of the Old Testament. And some of that most troubling content that has bothered you, bothered me, bothered other people that you know, we find it right within the pages of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant, the promise, the arrangement, the relationship that God made with Moses through to the nation of Israel. Now, also, let me say this. I told you in the very first week of this series that my goal for all of us was that at the end of this series, we would have a deeper appreciation for and a greater confidence in the scriptures as the word of God. And we can't do that. We can't have a deeper appreciation and a greater confidence for unless we face head on the difficult parts of the Old Testament. It would be real easy to sidestep the uncomfortable things. It would be real easy to do what many of us have made a habit of. We just don't think about it. We, we just don't want to think about it because when we think about it, we don't have a really good answer and it makes us feel uncomfortable and we don't like where our thoughts take us. So we just, we just don't think about it. Well, the problem is, what if one of your kids one day asks you a question about it? Or what if your you know, unchristian friend who doesn't follow Jesus has a question about this and, and they want to know an answer? Then you're going to have to think about it. Some of the most troubling parts of the Bible are within the pages of the Old Covenant. I don't want any of us in our churches to have a superficial trust in the Scripture because a superficial trust in the Scripture most always collapses under the weight of real life and hard questions. So we're going to tackle some of the complexities and some of the tension of the Old Covenant head on. Mark Twain said it this way. He said, it isn't the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bothers me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that bothers me. And maybe you understand that. Maybe you can relate to that. Uh, because one of the parts of the Bible that bother people the most, one of the parts of the Bible that has confused people the most, that people have most inter you know, misinterpreted, misrepresented, and miscommunicated has to do with the part that we're going to talk about today. And I, I just want to go on record in saying there's a lot in the Old Covenant that bothers me. I'm sure there's a lot in there when you allow yourself to think about it, it bothers you. And if it doesn't bother you, you need to book an appointment with a professional because you're just not thinking about what you're reading. There's parts of the Old Covenant, it's just downright weird. We, we can't understand it. It cuts against our modern sensibilities. It cuts against our modern enlightenment. But just because we don't understand it and just because we emotionally may dislike it and because we find it weird and we can't connect to it, we have to keep in mind that it is an ancient book. It is written to ancient people with ancient understandings and ancient assumptions. And I have no right in my modern context to discount it or dismiss it because of that. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. 
That we dismiss all things in the past because it doesn't make sense of our current set of circumstances. And based on our current set of knowledge, we can't relate to it. Now, last thing. It's one thing when we take the scriptures and use it as a case for faith. But it's another thing when somebody takes the same scriptures and uses it as a case against faith. So what if someone comes up to you and says, okay, you're, you're a Jesus follower, right? You follow Jesus? Yeah, okay. You, you love the Bible? Yeah, I love the Bible. Um, someone says, hey, do you believe the Old Testament is inspired? And, and if you, you know, believe like our church believes, and you, you would say, yeah, yeah, I believe the Old Testament's inspired. I believe it is. I believe it's the words of the Lord. I believe, I believe it's inspired. Yes, I believe the Old Testament's inspired. Okay. Uh, do you believe uh, those commandments that are in the Old Testament that's inspired? Do you believe that God's commandments are good? And, you know, you think to yourself, okay, okay, God's good. And so, yeah, everything God does must be good. And so, yeah, God's good. His commandments must be good. Yes, yes, I believe that all the commandments of God are good. God is good and God gives good commandments. Okay, do you follow them all? Well, of course not. Why not? Well, just because. Now, I follow some of them. You know, some of them you follow and some of them you don't. You've been set free from some, but I'm not set free from all. So, you know, I, you know so it's a buffet. Well, not really, but, but kind of. It's, it's a kind of buffet. You can pick a commandment there, pick a commandment there, dismiss this commandment, dismiss, you know. It's like, but, but how do you pick? Well, you know, I heard somebody say something one time and that made sense. And then, I, you know, I just kind of feel my way through it. It's these types of questions and these types of conversations which surfaces the bigger question. What are new covenant followers of Jesus to do with the old covenant law of Moses? Jesus said, I've come to do something new. It's incompatible with the old. If we are followers of Jesus in the new covenant, and we are, what are we to do with the old covenant law of Moses? Now, I just want to go on record in saying, first of all, I agree with the Apostle Paul in what he said in the New Testament. I believe that the Old Testament is inspired. And I believe that it's profitable. I believe that it's useful. It's useful for me. It's profitable for me. And I also agree with Paul when he says that when we read the Old Testament, we have to understand these things were not written to us, but they were written for us. And when we read them and understand them in their original context, it will result in both hope and encouragement. And when you read the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, which contains the Old Covenant, and you walk away without hope or encouragement, you're reading it incorrectly. So we're gonna pick up today where we left off last week. God has just rescued Israel in a dramatic fashion out of Egypt. He has saved them from slavery. They've been there for over 400 years. Moses went to Pharaoh just like God told him, let my people go, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, I'm not going to let God's people go. Then God sent some plagues and we talked about that. And then the final plague was a plague of death. And God told you know, Moses to tell the nation, if you want to escape the plague of death, then you take the life of a Passover lamb, take the blood, put it over your doorpost and down the sides of your door. And when death passes over your house at midnight, it will not stop. And so Israel, they're delivered. They go across the Red Sea. And then we pick up the story on the other side of the Red Sea. And there at Mount Sinai, they're going to spend the next 11 months. Now, We've heard of Mount Sinai, they leave Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, and they go to this mountain, and there they're going to camp for the next 11 months. Now, what's even more interesting is that it's going to take up the next 57 chapters of narrative in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. 57 chapters are going to be devoted to Israel's time at Mount Sinai. I think it's probably pretty important. Because that's where the Mosaic Covenant originated. It is an important part of the story, but it is not the point of the story. So we pick it up about a month after the Exodus. It says, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And there is act number two. They come across the Red Sea. They sing a song of worship. They praise and celebrate and worship God. And now in act two, they're complaining, mumbling, and grumbling against their pastors. You all would never grumble about your pastors, right? Well, certainly not. But you've met people. Who do? And this is kind of the way it is, you know. They're upset with Moses. They're upset with Aaron. You know, they're grumbling. The honeymoon ends before the honeymoon actually begins. They've actually already complained about the quality of the water. 
like mosses, we don't like the water. The water, we like prefer double osmosis. You know, we prefer that it be filtered doubly. And, you know, we don't like the water. It tastes weird. And, and Moses is like, are you kidding me? And, and here's the thing, what they're doing. They're allowing something small to rob them of the ability to appreciate the larger picture. They're allowing something small, insignificant, something that's not insurmountable, something that's fixable, something that you can get past. And they're allowing something small to rob them the ability of the ability to be able to appreciate the greater reality. And sometimes we all can do that. We fixate on something small. We fixate on something insignificant, uneternal. And, and then we focus on it to the point that we lose the ability to be grateful for the larger things in life. And this is what the nation of Israel is doing right now. This is what they will do over the next few centuries. The larger reality is this. They're no longer slaves. They're free people. But they're not grateful for being free people because they're worried about small, insignificant things. And I think in the month where we talk about gratitude a lot, I think that you and I should resolve to not be the person, to not be the family, to not be the couple, to not be the parents, to not be the church person who fixates on the small insignificant matter in such a way that it causes us not to be able to celebrate the larger picture. He says, so the Israelites told them, if only, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. They're saying, you know what? We, we just think it would have been better off for us to die instead of get out here and, and have to deal with all this. There we sat by and had pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. What? They were slaves. They're talking about as though they were members of the royal family. It's like we were down there and we had all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out here into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, don't miss this. They are remembering the past. That never happened. And if you want to read about something interesting, you can just Google it. There's lots of podcasts about it, lots of articles. But experts are determining more and more that our memories are not to be trusted. We create memories. We slide in details that never happened into our memories. I mean, I've read about it and I'm, I just second guess everything I think I remember. It's like, hey, I've always liked you. Or have I? <laughs> I'm not so sure. They're remembering a past that never happened. They're remembering a past that was better than what it actually was. And let me tell you, we do this all the time. And when you begin to think about your past as being something that it was not, it will undermine your perspective in the present. When you think about a past that's one thing and it actually wasn't that thing at all, it, end up, it ends up compromising your perspective in the moment and a compromised perspective in the moment undermines your ability to move forward. You can do this as a married couple and you remember a past about your marriage that never was a reality. You can do this as a family and you can think about to a day and oh my gosh, how great it was and how wonderful it was and you have absolutely created a work of fiction. Communities do this. Countries do this. Churches do this. And they remember a once upon a time that never happened. It is the mythology of a past that never was. And when you and I remember a past that never was, it always ends up compromising our present and our future. And so what do they do? They complain. They complain. And you know what we learn? We learn this right here. The presence of grumbling indicates an absence of gratitude. Let me tell you what silences grumbling. Gratitude. Do you know what releases grumbling from our mouth? A lack of gratitude. So here's the thing. You need to decide right now not to be a grumbler. Because the moment that you start grumbling, everybody around you is going to know. Mm, not grateful. <laughs> Grumbler, need to be grateful. When you start grumbling about the small things and you forget what God has done for you, you forget the blessings that God has placed in your life. Yeah, it's not all perfect and it's not all wonderful, but you think about some of the wonderful things that God has done for you, but yet you're over here grumbling about X, Y, and Z. You're thinking about a past that never happened. Don't be a grumbler. Don't be a complainer. Be a person who has so much gratitude, it spills out in their words. And, and here's another thing. Grumbling leads to stumbling. Grumbling is contagious. Negative people love, wait for it, negative people. And grumblers are great evangelists. 
They will befriend positive people to convert them over into their cynicism kingdom, their pessimism. It's like, hey, do you believe that it is now better to complain than to be positive? Yes, I do. Do you believe that it is better not to be grateful, but just to grumble as much as possible? Yes, I do. Well, I now baptize you, my brother, as my new friend. Because that's how negative people work. They love negative people. Let's just get together and grumble, 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 grumble. So they're there at Sinai. People are negative. People are complaining. About a month later, God shows up. And I've told you this before. God shows up on the mountain. There's thunderings. You know, there's lightning. There's the sound of trumpets. There's smoke. Before the modern church ever thought about, you know, sound, lights, and fog, God had it at Mount Sinai. God's up there and it's just incredible and God's up there and the people are down there and, and you know, they're so grumbly and they're so complaining. They're probably thinking, it's too loud up there on the mountain. It's just too loud. Moses, can you have God turn it down a little bit? And Moses is like, what? I can't hear you over all this noise. And, and, and you know, I'm sure they didn't do that, but that's, that's how I read the Bible, you know, or, you know, they didn't complain about, they put their sunglasses on. It's too bright. I don't like all those lights. Those lights are just, I just get distracted. That's not, but anyway, that's how I read. You should read the Bible that way because it makes it like your own personal movie. I would like to be a director one day and I think I could direct a, a movie about the Bible based on my version of the Bible about how I think it may have taken place, which I think, I think would, okay, I'm moving on. I think it could have been good, uh, but I'll probably never get to, to have the chance. Anyway, okay, so God goes up and it says, then Moses went up to God and the Lord called uh, to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. Now, again, I want to pause time out. I just want to bring something to the surface. He's speaking to them because of the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's speaking to the nation of Israel from the covenant that he made with Abraham. He has entered into a relationship with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with their descendants, and he is speaking to them from the foothold of the covenant that he made with Abraham. This covenant that he's making with Moses and Israel is not replacing the covenant. It is an offshoot from the covenant that God made with Abraham. And this is what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did. Now, Moses, I want to make sure. I don't think you think this, but I want you to know. I did what happened. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought the people out of Egypt. And how I carried you. You all didn't do anything. I did all the heavy lifting. No, I did all the lifting. I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And here comes the conditions and the terms of this covenant. Now, if... You obey me fully and keep my covenant. Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Now, the promise that God made with Abraham was unconditional. This covenant, this promise that God is making with Israel is conditional. Now, again, this covenant with Moses does not supersede. It does not replace the covenant that God made with Abraham, which was unconditional. But this is, if you do this, I will do this. This is a bilateral treaty, a bilateral covenant that God is making with Israel. The first one with Abraham was all on God. But this next covenant with Moses and the nation, this involved both of them. If you do this, I will do that. And you will be for me. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And so then God is about to give them the terms of this covenant what we call the Mosaic Covenant. Now, this is important because if, if we misread this part of the Bible, we're gonna misread the rest of the Bible. God is about to give them rules and commandments, not as a means through which they will become his people, but God is giving them rules and commandments because they are already his people. You gotta understand that. God is not giving them rules and commandments to keep in order to be his people, but God is giving them rules and commandments because they are already his people. In families, you don't give rules to your kids so they can become your kids. You give rules to your kids because what? They are your kids. You don't give you know, rules to the neighbor's kids, although sometimes you would like to give rules to your neighbor's kids, but you don't do that. This is not about, this is what you have to do to be loved by me. These are rules and commandments that I am giving to you because I already love you. And here's the big idea. Rules always indicate relationship. Marriages have rules. 
mostly unwritten. Maybe yours have some written. Uh, maybe that's a helpful thing. Uh, but we have lots of rules in our marriage, and it's taken me 17 years to figure out about half of them. All right? And, and sometimes they change. But every, every relationship has a set of spoken or unspoken rules. But rules indicate a relationship. Father, mother, sons, and daughters. And this is the type of thing that we see going on with the rules and commandments of the Old Testament. Don't misunderstand it. These commandments were not to be kept to be in favor with God, but these rules and commandments were given to a people who were already under the favor of God. He's not giving them commandments to keep in order to be accepted by him. He is giving them rules and commandments because he has already accepted them because he made a promise to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob and to all the descendants that would come after. So here's the cliff notes of the covenant. Obey me and be blessed and have life. Disobey me and there'll be curses and death. Obey me and there'll be life and blessing. Disobey me and there will be cursing and death. And, and basically that's it because here's what God is training the people to do. To think in binary terms. To think about life and death. To think about clean and unclean, to think about holy and unholy, to think about in and out. These are the terms that God is gonna frame this entire covenant. He's shaping the way his people are to think. We are moving towards life, we are moving towards death. We are unclean, we are clean, we are holy, we are unholy. So he's teaching them how to think. And so he's gonna give them the terms, he's gonna give them the conditions, the commandments. Now, this is the other thing, and this is a really important thing, and if you don't remember anything else today, remember this. Who is God speaking to? He is speaking to Israel. He is not speaking to you. We are not Jewish, and we are not ancient Israel. He is not speaking to you. He is not speaking to me. Who is God entering into a covenant with? He is entering into a covenant with Israel. We are not Israel. Most every single one of us, we're not Jewish. That means we're Gentiles. This was not a covenant God was making with Gentiles. This is not a covenant that God was making with nations. This was a covenant that God was making with one particular nation, one particular group of people, the Jewish people. So it is not our covenant. If you read the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you think that God is talking to you, you are going to be off base for the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. This is not our covenant. These are not our commandments. These are not our rituals. These are not our feasts. These are not our holy days. These are not our sacrifices. These are not our tabernacles and temples. These are the Israelites. It does not pertain to us, but there is things in it that we need to know because the part of this story is pointing to the greater point of the story that we need to understand. So God speaks in Exodus 20 and says, I am the Lord, your God. Now, this is interesting. He, he's claiming them. He's not giving them rules. He's not giving them any regulations. They've not had an opportunity to do anything for him. And he says, you already belong to me. There's already a relationship in place. You are my people. I have chosen you before you've ever had a chance to choose me. I am coming after you before you've ever had a chance to turn to me. I am your God. You are my people. You've not had a chance to do anything for me yet. But here's how it began. That night in Egypt, when Moses said, you slay the Passover lamb, those who trusted that God would pass over, those who trusted what God had told them to do in order to be saved, that was the beginning of their relationship with God because our relationship with God always begins in the same place. It always has, it always will, whether we're talking about the Old Testament or whether we're talking about the New Testament, it always begins with trust. It always begins with faith. And those who placed their faith in what God had said, they were saved that night. And the relationship began with faith. And so that's where it started. And so God speaks to them. He says, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then God gives them the 10 commandments, right? Uh, so somebody right now is gonna come up and get a mic and read, no, you're not gonna do it. You can probably remember like two or three or four or five, you know, maybe, you know, there was a Sunday school superstar. You can, you know, all 10, Ooh, you got all 10. Well, congratulations, but you haven't kept them. <laughs> anyway, okay. So 
You, you can remember the 10, you know, don't have any gods before me, you know, honor your mom and dad, and, you know, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit, you know, all that stuff. And, and we've heard this, you know, if you went to Sunday school, you've heard this, you've heard people talk about it. You know, uh, politicians, you know, they love the Ten Commandments uh, when they're trying to get votes. Uh, uh, and, and so it's just, you know, a lot, of, a lot of talk about the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments were not all of the terms and the conditions of the covenant that God made with Moses because God's going to start speaking in Exodus 20. And if you go on through the book of Exodus, on through Leviticus, whoo, heavy reading there. Go through Leviticus, into Numbers, uh, you're going to end up with 613 commandments. 613, listen, tell me who among us can even remember, much less keep 613 commandments. 613. You, you could break a law and not even know that you broke a law because you, 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 didn't, you couldn't remember that it was a law. I mean, who could do that? 613. I mean, and there were all kinds of laws, laws about worship, laws about how to camp, uh, laws about, you know, sex, who to have sex with, not to have sex uh, with, when, and, and all of that, food, food rules and laws and commandments, how to dress, how not to dress. Uh, I, I'm telling you, and it was detailed, and, and I've told you some of these before, but I'm telling you, some of you, you don't know this, but when you read through these, some of these are baffling. God gave, God gave his people a, like a price fix menu. He gave them like, you know, a chef's menu. Said, okay, here's one side of the menu you can order off of, this other side you can't order off of. So God gave them rules about the food they could eat. God said, you can't eat camels. It's like, darn. Boy, I love those camels. That was probably that pot of meat down there in Egypt. Boy, remember when we had those camel cookouts? I mean, it was incredible. We lit up a camel and it was just, you know, one of the best nights. See what I did there? But anyway, all right. But anyway, you can't eat camels, can't eat rabbits. You know, like what's wrong with a rabbit? You know, uh, can't have shellfish, can't have oysters. Uh, you can't have, you know, a nice, you know, lobster caught off the coast of Maine. Can't do it. They're unclean to you. you. You can't even have blood in your steak. Can't have fat on your steak. It's like, what? Yeah, you can't eat pigs either. What? I was willing to go with you on that, but no bacon? No, no bacon. I may be a deal breaker. I'm headed back to Egypt, right? You can't have short hair. You can't trim your beard. Uh, you can't mix threads. You, you can't have cotton and polyester at the same time. Or it, I mean, the wrath of God. And it's like we read these things and we're like, what is this all about? You can't, when you garden, you can't mix seeds. You can't throw two types of seeds in the same, same, you know, same, I guess that's how you do it. You know, you throw your two <laughs> seeds out there. Probably not the right technique, right? You get up here and do it one day. All right? That's all I want to say. You throw your two seeds out there and if two different seeds, wrath of God. No tattoos. Sorry, Creek Church staff. I'm sorry. Yeah, no tattoos. Disobedient kids, take them outside the city and stone them. I remind my kids all the time, we live outside the city limits. If you ever want to go back to the old way, right? They tell you who you can have, how, you know, sex, lots of rules about sex, commandments. I mean, some of it's like, what? If you have sex and, and you have an orgasm, then you're unclean for the evening. But if you have sex and, and there's no orgasm, then, then you're clean, you're good to go. What? And I just picture Moses up there chiseling this on those rocks. And I'm thinking, was this word art? Was this, you know, I, what? I mean, what? It's like, uh, you know, you can't have sex, you know, with your wife while she's menstruating because that would make you unclean. And if you don't do a sacrifice for that, you could be cut off from the whole community. And it's like, well, you don't want to be cut off from the whole community. So, you know, you want to make sure that you get this right. And it's like, they just go on and on. If you sit in the chair where a menstruating woman has been, then you're considered unclean. Uh, if you, you know, get married and on the night of your wedding, uh, you know, they show up and they decide that the female was not a virgin uh, because, you know, she didn't pass the test, then they could take her out and stone her. Uh, but for men, there was no such test. So I guess, congratulations, uh, you could never get caught. Uh, so, I mean, there was just all of this and it seemed wopsided and it seemed, you know, unjust. And, you know, then, you know, it's one of my favorite ones uh, um, to, to think about when I think about these things, when I talk about them. But, you know, that if your husband is in a fight with another man and, and the other guys, you know, really kind of laying it to him, uh, thou shalt not go up as a wife and grab the other man's genitals and twist. <laughs> Honest to God, send your Bible. <laughs> now, I just imagine somebody on that 70 elder board with Moses, that something that must have happened back in Egypt. It's like, Moses, I was in that fight when I was 25. 
can we make a law? Can, can we speak to that? Can we bring some law and order? And it's like, okay, you know, there's no sex with animals. And you, know, you can have sex with this person. You can't have sex with that person. You know, there's adultery. There's death. There's, there's idolatry. There's death. And I mean, it just, it just keeps on going. You can't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. And so, check. Uh, you know? And we read this in a modern sensibility. And it makes no sense to us. And so we try to dismiss it. Or we try to discount it, and we don't have the right to do that. We have to understand that there is a context that is far away from us, that there is a world far away from our own, and that there's something going on that obviously we don't understand. Uh, Paul Capon, he, he wrote a book, Is God a Moral Monster? And, and when I mention a book, I'm not endorsing everything in the book, but if you want to read about you know, the, the moral atrocities of the Old Testament or ethical questions that, that naturally arise out of Old Testament texts and things about slavery and things about you know, divine violence and, and all of those things, uh, he's written a book along with some others, and, and I'll release the list of those to you on our app. But, but he, he talks about the fact that just because we emotionally dislike it and, and, and because it doesn't make sense to us, we need to understand there's a reason it doesn't make sense to us. And so he talks about what's going on and he said, within this context, this context of a very fallen, fractured, sinful world, within this context, God raised up a covenant nation and gave the people laws to live. He helped create a culture for them. In doing so, he adapted his ideals. And God's ideals are, are the ways that he really wants it to be. Uh, the center of the target that in a perfect world, this is the way it would be. And so he adapts his ideals to a people whose attitudes and actions were influenced by deeply flawed structures. So yes, is there slavery in the Old Testament? Yes, there's slavery in the Old Testament. It is a deeply flawed structure. It would take civilization centuries to get to some level-headedness about things concerning slavery. Are there laws that seem absolutely ludicrous to us? Yes, because we are thousands years into the future. We've had a lot of living. We've had a lot of learning. We've had a lot of enlightenment since then. But God was speaking to an ancient people with ancient context, ancient understandings, ancient assumptions. And he was dealing with them where they were. And what seems perplexing and baffling to us and severe to us, if we stepped into their world and were able to be there, it would make more sense in its original context, which almost begins to be an impossibility for us where we are. And he goes on, he says, Mosaic times were indeed crude and uncultured in many ways. So Sinai legislation makes a number of moral improvements without completely overhauling ancient Near Eastern social structures. And assumptions. God works, and this is, this is important because this is how God always works. God works with Israel as he finds her. Uh, God doesn't overturn everything that's bad and everything that's wrong because that, that would have just not been a feasible thing. So God is interested in doing what is actually feasible. So he meets his people where they are while seeking to show them a higher ideal in the context of ancient Near Eastern life. If human beings are to be treated as real human beings who possess the power of choice, then the better way or a new way that's yet to come must come gradually. Otherwise, they will exercise their freedom of choice and turn away from what they do not understand. These laws in the law of Moses, they were not ideal, but God met the people where they were. He did not want them to stay where they were. He didn't banish all the flawed social structures, though we wish he had. It's not emotionally satisfying to read a lot of this stuff, but God is incrementally moving humanity towards an ideal. God is incrementally moving humanity towards what his purposes and plans are. In this particular Mosaic law, he, he did provide for the most vulnerable. And the most vulnerable did have rights and protections that no other culture at that time provided. It was not perfect, but it was a step in a better direction. These laws, these laws of Moses were not intended to be permanent because something better and something new would one day come. And the original creation of Genesis was God's ideal and he's taking us back there. The ideal that every human being has dignity and worth. Every human being is created in the image of God and has moral responsibilities. And this is where God's trying to take us. So God, and listen, don't, don't miss this, because Moses' law was not God's final word. 
it was not his final word. God has much left to do. And it says, then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. No, they became lawbreakers as soon as they received the law. As soon as they received the law of God, they broke the law of God. They broke it in about a half a dozen ways in the first few days. They broke the law of God before Moses had a chance to get down from the mountain. And once again, we're introduced right here in this very narrative of a God who doesn't give up on us. Moses tells the story this way, that when the people broke the law from the very beginning, when they broke the law, God was like, okay, I'm done. I'm wiping the slate clean. This was Moses' way of helping us understand the end of the story. But God, when he was approached by Moses, Moses went to God and pled for the mercy of the people, not on their performance, not on the merit of their performance, but upon the promise that God had made with Abraham. And he said, because you made this promise, spare this people of yours. And you know what God did? As soon as they broke the law of God, God gave them forgiveness. And we see this happening throughout the Old Testament. They break God's law, they break God's law, they break themselves when they break God's law, they break each other in breaking God's law, and God each time extends mercy and forgiveness. And then 1,400 years later, a carpenter from Nazareth shows up and he says these words. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus said, the old covenant law of Moses, in some way it was pointing to me and it ends with me. The old covenant was a shadow, but I'm standing here as the substance and I have come to do a new thing. I have come to place aside the old because the old is incompatible with the new. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, the Torah or the law of Moses is given for a specific period of time and then set aside. Not because it was a bad thing to be abashed, but because it was a good thing whose purpose had now been accomplished. So, what was the purpose of the law? So that God's people, Israel, could be distinct from Egypt and from the Canaanites, but more than anything else, so that God's law could teach all of us that we are nothing more, nothing less than lawbreakers at heart. So what hope is there for those of us who consistently and repeatedly break the law of God. And the answer that we have today is the answer that has always been and the answer that always will be. What hope do we have? Our hope is the grace of God. For those who have broken the law of God, our only hope is the grace of God. Paul said it this way. He said, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Nobody can work themselves into a relationship with God. Nobody can work themselves into being righteous enough, clean enough, holy enough to be in relationship with God. It can't happen by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We realize we're rebels at heart. But now, something new has happened. Something better has happened. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. In other words, you can be made right with God apart from keeping the law. Because guess what? You cannot keep the law. Because to break one part of the law, the scriptures say, is to break every part of the law. This is which the prophets and the law testified about all along. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe, not behave, but believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all. Everybody say all. all. Me, you, we, the world. We've all sinned and we fell short of the glory, the ideal that God had established in the very beginning. There's no big sinners and little sinners, just sinners. And Paul says, and all are justified freely. No cost to us because it cost him everything. No cost to you. You can be justified. That when God looks at you because of what Christ did for you, that when God looks at you, it's just as if you never sinned. Can you imagine that? That when he looks at us because of what Christ did for us, he sees us as though we never sinned. 
by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Where then is boasting? Is it excluded? Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the work of the law. So what do we see? In the Old Testament all the way into the New, here's what we get. When our capacity to sin comes up against God's capacity for grace, God wins every single time. Jesus would be the only lawkeeper, and he would die in the place of lawbreakers. God the Father would treat Jesus, his son, as a lawbreaker, though he was a lawkeeper. So that the people who place their faith in Jesus, though they were lawbreakers, could be treated as though we were law keepers, though we are not. That is the grace of God. That's been the answer from the very beginning, and it will be until the very end. Let's bow our heads. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed at all of our churches. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, Jesus died in your place as he died in my place, in our place, because we could not keep the law because we continually broke the law. And the law required judgment. The law required death. And Jesus took our death so we could take his life. And if you're here today and you wanna place your faith in Jesus as your savior, as your Lord, if you wanna throw yourself upon his grace to be justified freely at no cost to you because he paid it all, Just pray a simple prayer like this, dear Lord Jesus. Today, the best I can, I believe. I believe that you love me and you died for me and you were raised from the dead so that I could be forgiven freely forever. So right now, the best way I know how, by faith, I ask you to save me. I trust my life into your hands because of what you did for me at the cross. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you're here and you prayed that prayer and you meant it, maybe it's the first time or maybe it's the first time in your life though you've prayed it before that it really meant something to you. You just slip up a hand and say, Trevor, I'm just gonna slip my hand up and right back down. There's a hand and there's a hand and there's a hand. And just slip it up and put it, there's another. Slip it up and say, I prayed that prayer with you just now and I meant it with all my heart. Just slip it up, there's another. Anybody else, just, just slip it up. By faith justified. By faith, we're forgiven. And that's the promise that God has given to you. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, think about what he's done for us and how grateful we should be for the grace of God. Let's all stand together. At all of our churches, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And if you're here and you've prayed to receive Jesus, or maybe you're here and you just feel like you need to recommit your life to him, some of our pastors are going to be down front and I would encourage you just to take out a step and if you want to be prayed with or prayed for this would be a great time to do that if you just want a place to pray privately you can do that as well if you're here and you want to be prayed with pray for feel free to step out heavenly father as we sing together give us freedom to respond how we need to respond in Jesus name